And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Pastor Al Baker. He's a revival evangelistic preacher with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. Pastor Al, it is an honor to have you on with us today. Thank you, Dan. It's always great to be with you as well. You have a mailing list, and I am on your mailing list. And from time to time, you'll tell of the great work that the Lord is doing around the world, and you're part of that work. And uh, I'm just wondering, can you share with us, uh, you know, first first off, evangelism. To me and to others, it sounds a little scary. Uh, some of us are more reclusive. Um, we, we just are almost afraid of it. Can you can you talk a little bit about evangelism? Yes. Well, I think, first of all, you know, I think we all are supposed to do the work of an evangelist, even though probably most believers are not gifted evangelists. They're good at teaching or discipling or counseling or, you know, showing compassion and mercy to people, which of all of those things, of course, are very, very important. But so not all are evangelists, but nonetheless, um, we should seek to engage in evangelism. And um, I think that what we have to do is um, uh, just a fresh and a new fall in love with Jesus and, uh, you know, remind ourselves of what he's done for us. Um, you know, some of us have been Christians for a long time, and I think sometimes we forget what we were really like before we were converted. I mean, some of us were probably pretty nice people, but nonetheless, we were on the road to destruction. Some others, of course, were, were really very, very far away from God, wicked and vile, and yet God saved us. And so, um, you know, Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. So I think you start with that and, um, and you just meditate on the love of Jesus for sinners. And um, this is what I love to do. I just love to lift him up, you know, wherever I can, you know, um, on an elevator. You know, the other day I was going down the, the elevator with somebody and and uh, they said, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? I said, yes, it is a beautiful day. And you know, it's always a beautiful day when you know Jesus. <laughs> and I said, you know, he saved me years ago and I just rejoice at what he's done in my life. And then we get off the elevator, we move on, or go on our way. So we can always do that in one way or the other. I like to say, we can always get Jesus on the scoreboard of our conversations very easily. Mm. Just look for ways. Yeah, good point. In each of our spheres of influence, uh, the, where the Lord has placed us, it may not always look the same how one person does it versus another. That's right. Um, we're all different. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of times I think we look at evangelists, we think, well, I could never do that. That's, that, that guy's kind of like a used car salesman. Well, you know, used car salesmen are, you know, they're always outgoing personalities, and a lot of us are not. So, um, so yeah, it's different uh, from person to person. Some of the best evangelists I know are very quiet people, and uh, they just, they just, you know, try to ask God to give them open doors. And I, I really believe that's important, too. You know, in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 4, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae and Ephesus, and he's making requests on, on his behalf, and he says, pray for me that I would have an open door for the gospel. So Paul was always looking for ways to uh, entrees, uh, new venues 
to to lift up Jesus. And I think we can do that. And just and if we'll look for those opportunities during the day, just walking along, you know, in a store, being nice to people. Like my wife, what she'll do is she'll she'll be checking, going through a checkout line, and she'll look the checkout person in the eye and say, "How are you today?" Hmm. And it's amazing how people will open up. Yeah. If you love people, they can sense it. They can sense it, and then you can, you know, speak into their lives. And again, some people are more gifted in compassion and mercy, and so that evangelistic gift might manifest itself more in that way, like coming alongside and helping someone, uh, you know, like the next-door neighbor who maybe the, maybe the older woman just lost her husband. And she's lonely. She has no children or grandchildren living nearby, and maybe she's a believer, maybe she's not, but, you know, you you have somebody says, well, I'm going to reach out to my next-door neighbor and just, you know, go over there and sit with her and bring her a meal or whatever, and the next thing you know, you're into a gospel conversation. So there's just any way, any number of ways we can do it. And I like what you said when you opened up, and that is we we need to fall in love with Jesus, and so yes. that he permeates every every cell of our body, as it were. Yeah. Um, you know, my heart is broken in some ways. I with my wife, we were in a small town nearby, a small city. We often go there. We live nearby, and we have seen uh, the town um, go downhill. Uh, there's a lot more drug traffic on on parts of the town now, um, a lot more graffiti around, weird drawings on the building. It looks more and more like a third-world city. And I realize uh-huh. that there's no amount of... Um, and these are due in part to poor policies and and excessive welfare and all that. But the root cause has to do with the hearts of the people not loving Jesus, but also not loving Jesus and obeying his word. Um, you must carry that same weight where you look at these places and you say, there's so much human suffering as a result of sin. Um, it, it's a terrible feeling to get that, and yet it's a wonderful uh, hope. Uh, the gospel of Christ releases men and women from the bondages of sin. That's exactly right. You know, when you when you started on that question, made me think of. Uh, George Washington's very famous farewell speech he gave in September of 1796. He'd been president for two terms, and of course back then there were no term limits, so people wanted him to run a third term, and he decided he was not going to do that. So he wrote longhand, of course, about a 30-page letter and sent it out to the to the uh, to America, to our new country. And it's an amazing letter, and you can get it online. I would encourage your your uh, uh, listeners to do that. But there's one paragraph in particular recently that struck me. And uh, of course, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, um, if we're going to be, and he, w- he was concerned about the potential division in the nation. All, already after eight years, there was, there, was major, there was major rift. And of course, we have that today. We have major divisions in our country. Uh, I think Dennis Prager recently said that we're in a civil war, a second civil war. And I, and I believe that. I, I just see the difference Yes. The conflicting worldviews, it's so uh, stark right now. And so George Washington's solution was, he said, we must 
ha- you cannot build this nation unless there is what he calls religion and morality. And of course, what he meant by religion was Christian faith. And you must have both of those. And the, and the morality flows out of the religion or the Christian faith. And of course, I would add a, a third to that, which Eric Metaxas talks about it quite a bit. And that's, uh, that's uh, faith and virtue um, are, are absolutely essential to this, this whole thing. So uh, faith, virtue, and freedom. And freedom comes, true freedom comes from being in Christ Jesus. And that's what our nation needs. And we now are in a a pagan world. We, this is a neo-pagan world in which we live. And you see it manifested um, in um, the same-sex uh, unions, um, the uh, androgynous um, culture we have in which, uh, you know, pe- people are blending. There's no more a sense of a binary uh, people are blending together, men and women. So you've got the men turning to women, women turning to men, and all of that is pagan in in origin. And Paul speaks of that in Romans chapter one, and he says uh, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever and ever. And so you know, God gives them over to in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Then God gives them over to their passions. That's where he talks about homosexuality. And finally, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do all manner of evil. And so we're under the judgment of God. Why? Because we have become a pagan nation. We're worshiping the the creature, the world, rather than the creator. So you've got you know, you've got uh, the New Age movement. You've got, uh, uh, you know, trees are, are gods in the trees, gods in everybody. And so that's a denial of the binary nature of the world that God created. He's the creator. We're the creation. There's a male. There's female. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. That binary is absolutely uh, foundational to this world, and people are denying it, and it always brings it always brings us paganism. And what we're going to find in due time, and we're starting to see it, is the same thing was happening with Nero in Rome. He began to persecute the Christians. He began to call them out, and and uh, they were disenfranchised. And that's what we're starting to see in this country. And here's the beautiful thing um, that um, what Paul did. What did Paul do? He didn't go in, and he didn't try to you know, crusade for um, uh, the rights of the Christian. Uh, what he did was he preached the gospel. Yeah. And when he preached the gospel, the gospel began to change people. It seems like, from what I've read, uh, you know, there's 120 believers uh, in the upper room uh, when Jesus, uh, you know, uh, when Jesus is ascended to heaven and they're praying for 10 days and the Pentecost comes. At the end of 100 years, there's a million Christians in the Roman Empire. The next 100 years, there's two, 2 million. The next 100 years, there's 10 million. It began to grow slowly, but it began to grow. And a tsunami of truth, biblical truth, began to sweep over the Roman Empire. And, you know, over four or 500 years, it made a remarkable change in the world. And that's what we have to get back to. And so the solution, now I'm not saying that we don't need politics. Yes, politics is important. Good, you know, biblical values and politics. But beyond that, there must be a heart change. 
and the oh, and that's that's the gospel of Jesus. That is the only thing that's going to save our nation is millions of conversions, and I believe God could do that. That would be a revival, and that's what's that's what's vital. That's what's needed in our day. Yes, yes. I um I recently saw the um, uh, account of uh, Billy Graham, his life. It was a nice summary of his life and the preaching. And, um, you know, he's not from a reform perspective, but God mightily, mightily used him uh, in in God converting many people. Do you see anything similar to that ever happening again, where there's more uh, larger uh, preaching events happening? Well, I certainly pray it will. Um, I'm looking for that man, you know, that that would that would be available for that. I believe God has always used men like that. You know, there were some very very dark times in in uh, our history. You go back to um, the early 1700s in England, and you know, you you read about how um, every third house was a manufacturer of uh, gin or alcohol. Their alcoholism was rampant. And there were so many, there was so much uh, licentiousness and wickedness. In order to curb it, in order to try to control it, I believe the um, um, England had something like ten uh, crimes punishable by death. There's the story of the twelve-year-old boy who stole a loaf of bread because his family was in poverty and they executed him. I mean, this this. Uh, this law came in heavily because the people were trying to control the situation. And yet in that context, in 1735, within a period of about three months, three men, three young men, all about 21 or 22 years old, were totally unknown. And yet God converted these men, and they didn't know each other at the time. George Whitfield in England, Howell Harris and Daniel Rowland in Wales. And these three men began almost immediately to preach Christ. They tried to preach in the churches, but the churches pretty quickly drove them out because they didn't want to hear the message. And so they went to the fields, the open fields, and they preached in towns. And Whitfield, uh, this is amazing for us to consider, but Whitfield could preach to 30, 40, 50,000 people in an open field. You get up on a, <laughs> get up on a, uh, uh, a stone wall, and the people were down below him, and his, he had an amazing voice. He could project, uh, because he had been in the theater, so he knew how to project his voice. And he could preach to 50,000 people. Hmm. Uh, he preached in Philadelphia, and Benjamin Franklin went back four city blocks and could hear him. <laughs> and it's amazing. And, and, and God, that was the Great Awakening. And Whitfield died in 1770. Of course, we gained our independence. Uh, we declared it in 1776. And then there was the Constitutional Convention in 1783. And by 1788, we were a new nation. We had our Constitution. And even though the, even though the Great Awakening had ended by that time, and even though the, um, the French Revolution and the wickedness of uh, that godless atheistic revolution were very much a part of our country. There's no question that our country was founded on Christian principles, largely flowing from the Great Awakening. And again, in 1735, until that time, from about 1680 to 1735, there was nothing going on in this country. We were really, really wicked. 
Yes. And God raised up those preachers. So we should pray that he'll do that again. And it's usually young men. All the all the revivals I've studied, with the exception of the Fulton Street Revival in New York City in 1857, which was Jeremiah Lamphere. He was about 55 at the time. All the other leaders in these great awakenings were all young men in their 20s or 30s. I like to tell people that the great Charles Spurgeon was preaching to 5,000 people at the age of 25. Mm. And when the revival broke out in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1735, Jonathan Edwards was 32. Billy Graham in Los Angeles in 1948, I think, was 28 years old. <laughs> so, and, and you're right, Graham, by the way, was a powerful, powerful preacher. If, you, if people want to, you know, people probably in their minds, they have memories of him preaching maybe in, in the late, in the 90s or whatever, well, he had mellowed quite a bit by then, and he was still he was still a godly man, but but he lost some of that that power, it seems to me, <laughs> probably because of his age. But I want to tell you something. You look back at his sermons in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, and the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit was on him in a powerful way. And that's what we need today. God has always used preaching. And I don't see any reason why I shouldn't continue to use it today. Well, tell us a little bit more about um, the work that you're involved in, Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. And some people might say, Reform, wait a minute, that's Calvinistic. Isn't that uh, fatalism? (laughs) Yeah, I know, we get that all the time. And people say, you're Presbyterian, you're an evangelist, I don't get that. I said, yeah, I know, that's unfortunate. But, But if you look back through history... Some of the greatest evangelists were Reformed and Calvinistic. In fact, up until Wesley, uh, that was always the case. So, um, and there's no contradiction. Look, it's it's 100% God. God's the one who elects people unto salvation. Paul makes that clear in Romans 8 and Romans 9, and yet in Romans 10, he turns right around and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So it's 100% God, but it's 100% man, too. In other words, we're to preach. People got to believe. You call them to repentance, but they're not going to believe unless the Spirit is drawing them, John chapter 6. So we we just we preach. And so what I do is uh, the last few weeks, last like last week, I was in Houston, and I was preaching in the open air there. And a couple weeks before that, I was in New Orleans at the Mardi Gras. In a, uh, back in, in May, I'm going to be in Boston. We're going to be at Harvard and some of the schools there. And we're going to preach in the open air. And I don't know, some people might have a negative view of it, because after all, if you've been on the streets, you may have seen some open air preaching, and some of it's quite bad, actually. Um, they're, they're calling people names, they're screaming and yelling at people, and that's not what we do. For example, this past um, Friday and Saturday, excuse me, Saturday and Sunday, in uh, Houston, there was some big rodeo and uh, big thing going on they have in Houston. It goes on for several weeks, and there's some country music stuff. So people are stopping at a light to get across the street to go into the venue. So they're stopped there for like three or four minutes. There's a couple hundred people waiting to get across the street. So I'm standing there, and I'm saying, I, I want to give you some good news. I, I would agree. I bet you would, uh, will agree with me that there's a lot of bad news in this world. Well, let me give you some good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. <laughs> so I just lift up Jesus right there. And I said, yeah, you know, he talks about people perishing. We all know there's a heaven. We all know there's a hell. You might suppress it. You might say, no, nah, no, nah, there's not nothing. No, you know there is, because 
book of Ecclesiastes says that uh, eternity is written on your heart. So you know what I'm saying is true, but nobody has to go to hell. Jesus went to hell for us. I talk about his propitiating death, the wrath of God was poured out on him. And I tell you, people listen. They listen. They rare, they, I didn't get anybody mocking the message. Now, at the Mardi Gras, some did, but they were, you know, they were about, you know, pretty drunk at that <laughs> point. But, you know, but, but they still hear the gospel. Like when I was at the Mardi Gras, I, at one point I'm saying, now repentance means you're going in the wrong direction, and you must turn around and run to Jesus who can save you. I'm preaching, and this young girl, maybe 22 years old, with her boyfriend who is all tatted up, walks up to me, and she, she gets right next to me. I thought, well, she's going to challenge me. But she said, how did you know I was going the wrong way? Mm. And I said, well, I didn't know about you specifically, but I know that all people are, and I quoted, you know, Matthew seven thirteen and 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and so forth. And I was able to, to share Jesus with her. She says, yeah, I've really messed up my life. I'm, I'm on heroin. And um, we, we, I put my hand on her shoulder. I said, you know what? God loves you, and God can save you, and here's the Bible, and here's my name and phone number. You call me anytime, and I'll be glad to help you. And that's what you see on the street. I mean, think about it. You know, I mean, a lot. Of, I don't even think a lot of people are really thinking this thing through very well. But has there ever been a time other than when there really is a great movement of God, where people just say, yeah, I think I'll go to church Sunday. I haven't <laughs> been to church in my entire life, but I think I'll go. That's not how it works. People stay away from church, and yet churches tend to think, well, we'll just, we're here, you know, maybe they'll show up. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what the apostles did. Jesus went after people. That's what the apostles did. They went out they got out of the church, and they went to people. And that's what we have to do. And again, not everybody's an evangelist. The evangelists need to do that. And by the way, I think every church needs an evangelist on its staff. And you let him do his thing, and he'll find a few people in the church who are like-minded, and they go out and they bring people in. But the rest of us, just as we walk through life, we look for opportunities. God, give me an open door. If you give it to me, I'll take it. And I think that's how we need to proceed. Amen. Amen. We're talking today with Pastor Al Baker about evangelism. And Pastor Al, uh, as you were talking, I could envision many times we see smokescreen distractions put in front of us to try to kind of get under our skin. And yet, if we stick to proclaiming the Word of God in situations like that, there's something much more powerful than our own arguments, and that is the Spirit of God empowering His Word to get through to that person's heart. And I see that evidenced in, in your style and in the style of other evangelists. Uh, you mentioned Billy Graham, and I, I constantly go back, I think, time and again he would say, the Bible says. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Um, we're right. at a time, if someone would like to get in touch with you, maybe there is a young man today who is listening who wants to be discipled in this, and he is one of these future evangelists. How could he get in touch with you, and is there a website he could visit? Yes, he can, uh, he can, he can email me at al.baker.com. One nine five two at gmail dot com, and he can go to pef dot org. 
uh, pefministry.org. We still call it still pefministry.org. Also, um, uh, I'll be in Boston in May, and I'll be in New York City uh, Memorial Day weekend. And Memorial, and both of those opportunities, by the way, we're looking to train younger men in, in open air preaching. And so I've got several younger men who are planning to come. This is a great; these are great venues to learn how to preach in the open air. And I like to tell my young uh, friend, uh, my young uh, pastoral interns or men going to seminary thinking about it, I said, there's not a more manly thing that you can do than go preach in the open air. <laughs> you need to come join me because it is, it is a powerful thing, and it helps you overcome your fear. And uh, I can tell you, uh, Dan, there's nothing like uh, preaching in the open air because you sense, you see God's power. And you're glorifying it. To me, it's an amazing opportunity to glorify God. So it's it's really powerful. Well, this has been a sweet discussion today. Our guest is Pastor Al Baker. Uh, he's a revival evangelistic preacher, and he's with the Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. We'll put your contact information up on our website. Pastor Al, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it as well. God bless you, you and your program. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Lead on, O King Eternal, we follow not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning, where'er thy face appears. Lead on, O oh God of mine.